for Children's Church. The rest of you, let's open up our Bibles. We are in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3, and we are picking up where we left off last week, so we're at verse 13, and we'll finish the chapter. It's the baptism of Jesus. So Matthew 3, 13 to uh, 17. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over by uh, where Alex is standing uh, so you can follow along with us. But this is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. And ask for God's blessing on our time. Uh, Father, as we uh, turn to the pages of Scripture, as we uh, seek to hear from you and your revelation to us, we, uh, we pray specifically for today's passage that, God, you would help us uh, to see the glory in what is going on. Uh, the fact that the, the Trinity, that all three persons of the Godhead are, are there and are at work, and, and you've got encouragement and comfort for us and hope as we see this passage. So we pray that you would shed a divine light on those matters, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Do you remember the first day of work at whatever job you can think of? I mean, obviously, a vast majority of us have worked more than one job one place of employment over your life. But can you remember what the first day was like? How was it? Were there highs? Were there lows? What was that day like? I think most of us, the first day is usually pretty uneventful. Minimal interactions with customer if it's a customer job because they don't want you in front of a customer quite yet. Lots of paperwork usually. You're signing away your life, it feels like, as you fill out this form and this form and that form. Maybe you have to watch some training videos. You'll get a tour of the facility. You may even get an experienced trainer who goes along with you. But most of the time, that first day is not that big of a first day. Uh, Imagine uh, you end up getting a job down the street at one of the local banks, and on your first day— Uh, You start the day off with by administering CPR and saving somebody's life. Be a pretty big first day. A little bit later, you end up opening up in a bank account for the largest bank account they've ever had in the history of the bank. So that would be pretty impressive. And then you finish the day by thwarting a bank robbery. And then when you'd get home, like, how was your first day? Let me tell you. It would be quite the day, right? Because it's usually uneventful, and this is, it is beyond the mundane and ordinary. Well, today's passage, we need to understand this. In, in some sense, it's Jesus' first day on the job. It's his, his first day 
in his earthly ministry. This is going to be the, the kickoff, the inauguration of his time. And it's an eventful one, to say the least. We see all three persons of the Godhead in full effect making much of that day. So as we look at this first day, uh, we're going to look at uh, the, the Trinity basically at work. We're going to begin by seeing that the Son is baptized uh, it's going to be a little bit confusing because it doesn't seem like Jesus should be being baptized. He should be the one baptizing. So we're going to see what is going on there. Secondly, we're going to see the Spirit descends and how he's going to empower the Son for this earthly ministry. And then lastly, we will hear the Father speaking and how he affirms that this is his Son, that this is the Messiah. So let's get started. Uh, the son is baptized. Now, last week, we were introduced to arguably one of the, the coolest, uh, most impressive men in all of the Bible, and it's John the Baptist. Uh, even Jesus himself, he said, uh, born of a woman, no one is greater than, than John. And what we saw with John was this radical, countercultural message of faith and repentance, he wasn't bashful. He wasn't fearful of man's approval. He was all about the truth. He was all about pointing people to Jesus. He was there to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, the person that he had been preparing for and preparing to, he comes and meets them face to face. Well, first thing I want us to see is, uh, as the son is being baptized, his innocence. Read verse 13 with me. All right, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Do you understand what's going on? Okay, up to this point, we need to understand this. Jesus has been below the radar. What we've read so far about Jesus primarily is the birth narrative Elsewhere in the Gospels, we, we have a really small part where Jesus was older, went to the temple, got left there, and it ends up saying that he grew in wisdom and stature. But beyond that, from the birth until today, it's been kind of silent. Nobody knows. And then we got to realize prior to the birth of Jesus, we're talking hundreds of years where it felt like God had, had hit the mute button. There was no word from God. They're, they're, they're wondering, is, is, are we still God's covenant people and everything? So in the midst of all of that, Jesus in obscurity in Nazareth for 30 years, we even know that his family did not fully grasp who he was. Mark 3.21, it says this. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So even his, his brothers and his, his family, they did not fully grasp that this is the Messiah. So to kick off his earthly ministry, he shows up to John. He is probably alone. This is before he called any disciples with him. So there is Jesus showing up to John the Baptist to be baptized by John. And it was likely at the height of John's fame and uh, notoriety as uh, his ministry out in the desert. And notice what John is. He is resistant initially to baptize Jesus. Why? So when we're in college, when you go to college, uh, one of the things that you often have to do is you got to have prerequisites. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
So as a prerequisite, in order to take this class, you had to have had this class or something comparable credit-wise. So no matter how much you want to take that class, you've got to have that prerequisite. Remember what John's baptism is. It was a baptism of, started with R. What word is that? Repentance. It was one where you needed to confess your sins, you needed to bear fruit. Now think about what we're seeing happening right here. Jesus is going to be baptized. Well, to be baptized based on John's baptism, what's the prerequisite? You have something to repent from, right? Matthew 3, 1, it says repent. He he said earlier, confessing their sins, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It means he needs to turn from sin. How can you turn from something that you've never done that's not in you? The second thing is he needs to confess. What's he going to confess? He's not done anything to confess. Hebrews 4.15 says, But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then lastly, it's a baptism where you'd bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It implies real change. The bearing fruit from repentance implies that you weren't bearing fruit when you were in your unbelief. And now because you're, you're following the Lord, there's this new creation change. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So John is actually accurate with what he says right here. When John says, I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me, this just feels wrong. He, he's, he's actually right. Also notice the humility of John the Baptist. We've already seen that he has said he is unworthy to carry, to tie the sandals of him, which would have been the lowest of low slave jobs. And yet, in the midst of all of this, once again, we see the humility of John. Well, do you hold to this? This is crucial. Please understand this. This is key theological foundational truths to behold, that Jesus is sinless. This is a non-negotiable. If we have a sinful Savior, we don't have a Savior. Do you understand why John was hesitant? Well, because of his innocence, then, we need to understand, well, what's going on then? This is what's going on. His identifying, his identifying. Read verse 15 with me. But Jesus answered him, let it not, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. He convinces John to obey, to listen to him. Now, we don't know exactly Jesus in, in God's word just doesn't give great clarity on what this means when he says it's going to fulfill all righteousness. But we do know that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism carries with it significant symbolism and meaning behind. So what is some of the symbolic meaning of Jesus being baptized. I think there's four specific ways we can see as it relates to this passage. First of all, he is identifying with obedience. Reaffirm then what John was doing was good, what was right, and he was willing. There was no loophole. Do you understand that? It's not do as I say, but not as I do. I do apply that this week at VBS. VBS, we have a very clear system of picking up your kids. 
but I'm the pastor. So like I wanted to bypass the system. It's like I came in, they're like, yeah, you're going to have to go there. And I'm like, like, do, does this person know who I am? Like, I'm one of the pastors. I'm the one. Up, and like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be just like everybody else. And I, I got in line late and had to wait for my kids. And, you know, Jesus, he, there's an element in all of this that it's just an ask of obedience. That he's, he's not asking the people who have been being baptized by John to do something that he was not willing to do. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I think in the midst of it, we see a humility of Christ that time and time again in the gospel, things are not beneath Jesus. Even though in all honesty, they are beneath Jesus. But in his humility, he's willing to do that in the humiliation of Christ. But not only is he identifying with obedience, he's identifying with sinners. That's the key, I think, identification here. That sinners are going to need to be cleansed. Remember, John's baptism is repentance and confession, and he is going to be our representative, right? Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. So him coming on the scene and being baptized by John is saying, I am the representative for sinners. I am doing what ultimately is going to lead me to the cross where I pay that debt. So he's identifying with sinners. He's also identifying with suffering. This is key. Now our baptism, what does it look back at with regards to Jesus? It looks back at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of that. When we do baptism, and we are having a baptism in August, a plug in the midst of all of the sermon. If you have not been baptized as a believer, myself and Andy would love for you to follow in obedience to Christ and to be baptized and make that public profession before the congregation, before family. So that'll be in August. We'd love for you. But in baptism, one of the things that we see is when you go in the water, now mind you, the Ricos pond that we use, it doesn't have like magical water. It does have some pretty big fish. But you, when you go into the water and you come out, it's symbolic of a couple of things. One, that you have been cleansed, that you go into the water in your sin and, and your dirt and filth of that. And then as you come out, you're, you're, you're clean because of Christ. It also identifies you as being united to Christ. It also is uh, a way that it, it's kind of symbolic of time, that you were an old creation, now you're a new creation. So that's what our baptism looks like. Jesus's baptism, on the other hand, is not looking back. It was looking ahead. He was looking ahead at the cross that he was going to have to die upon in order for you and I to be able to come out of that water cleansed. He was looking ahead at his burial, where there's going to be that separation. He's looking ahead at his resurrection. If you don't believe me, listen to Mark 10, 38. This is later on in his earthly ministry. But he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which would I am baptized? And he's not talking about water baptism at that point. He's talking about what? The cup he's about to drink, the cup of God's divine wrath as he suffers on the cross. 
And I think the last identification we see here in this baptism is he's identifying with being set apart, the Messiah. His willingness to embrace, to start his calling as God's son. Uh, Jewish priests, now it changed a little bit in age, but there was a point where at 30 years old, is, as they were going to be taking up the office, they would have been washed with water as kind of a symbolic act that they've been set apart. So there might be some of that going on, just that Jesus is identifying that I am set apart for this work. Philippians 2.6 says, He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Well, does Jesus' humility amaze you? Does his willingness to identify with you encourage you this day? It just, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make sense that Jesus does what he does, but he does it because he, he's, he's committed to the Father's will. He does it because he loves us. So that's the, the son. We see he's baptized. We see his innocence. We see his identifying. Let's not look at the spirit descending. The spirit of God comes down upon Jesus in the third person. So what we see is he needed the Spirit's empowerment. Read verse 16 with me. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, we need to recall this is a promise that God made to John. Uh, Have you ever... Uh, had to meet somebody that you've never physically met before, maybe even never saw a picture. So you're kind of like wondering, are, are you that guy? Are you that guy? We've even seen it in kind of the movies where uh, maybe it's this blind date and the person shows up and the one where the red rose or the carnation is, is on the table. It's the, it's the indicator. It's the signal that there she is or there he is. Well, God told John to look out for something. Listen to John one thirty three. He said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So God promised where the Spirit comes down, that is the one who I've said, so that was John's indication when all of this happens, he's the one. Uh, even though before it happens, he had already said, I shouldn't be baptizing you because of that. So there's a, a promise to John here. But also I think it's, it's very important that we need to see that Jesus needed power. Now, as we unpack that statement, I think you need to exercise very much caution when we speak of mysteries like this. Uh, one, we need to point out Jesus did not become the Son of God in this moment, okay? Jesus, Son of God, for all eternity, when he was born, he took on flesh. He became incarnate. He did not become the Son of God, so we need to understand that. Also, what we're, we're talking about here is the, what we call in theological terms, the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. It's the union of Jesus' two natures. So we know Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. Now, in the gym right now, uh, we ended up putting air conditioning in, an air conditioning unit. So, and I have access, along with several of the guys, 
of, of the unit. We have two options with this air conditioning unit. It also has heat. So I can either turn on the cool, and then I usually get looks from some of the women that it's too cold in here. And then I'll usually turn it down a little bit. And then I got guys saying, hey, why didn't you turn the air down? It's t- so, and the only way I can offset that is to turn the air off. And then I have to turn the heat on. To, so it's like the, the unit doesn't go based on the temperature the way this current unit is. And I think we need to understand when we start talking about the hypostatic union of God, it wasn't like God, that Jesus would turn a switch all right, here's fully, fully God, Jesus, in this moment. And then over here, turn the switch, fully man moment. No, that's, that's a misunderstanding of Jesus and his, his two natures in, in this sense. So what we do see is in his humanity, it never gets lost in his divinity. So his humanity needed what? He needed the Spirit. He needed the Spirit's leading in his life. Matthew 1.18, he was the cause ultimately of the virgin birth is the way the Father speaks. John 3.34, it says that he gives the Spirit without measure. So he was, uh, had the Spirit without measure. Isaiah 42.1 talks about him being endowed with the Spirit. And then Matthew 12.18, it says that he performed miracles in the Spirit. John Owen, uh, the great writer and theologian, speaks of the Holy Spirit being the author of Christ's graces. So, do you give the Holy Spirit the proper esteem to him? I think in the Trinity, uh, in reform circles and more maybe biblically conservative circles, I think we downplay the significance and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we often um, don't give him the, the credit that is rightfully his. You see his work in the life of the, Jesus Christ. <laughs> We also need, and, and I don't want to digress too much on this. Jesus, the Holy Spirit was working in Jesus' life prior to this time. The Bible doesn't give great clarity on it. I think him coming down was much more uh, representative for everybody to see that it was clear. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is not necessarily a dove. It was a visual aid for us to see the Spirit come down. Uh, So with that said, he needed the Spirit. Guess what you and I need? We need the Spirit's empowerment. If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in his humanity needed God's Spirit, what does that imply about you and I? And that's why he promises that he will send the Spirit. Jesus is aware that they needed help. John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Do you understand that? So in the hypothetical scenario, Jesus never leaves. He does not send the Holy Spirit. He doesn't ascend to glory. So we, we needed him to go. Acts 1.5, it says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and then Pentecost happens, the Spirit comes down in the church, and we're seeing the effects of that reality 2,000 years later. And I think the great example of the Spirit coming down and the change that it produces in the life of who? Simon Peter. Jesus' crucifixion, how impressive is Simon Peter? First of all, he starts off by cutting the dude's ear off. 
and then he's afraid of a girl. And he keeps denying, so he denies Christ. So he goes from that kind of a wreck to then when you turn to the book of Acts, once the Spirit comes upon him, he is powerful and mighty and, and bold and, and courageous for the Lord. And that's why God sent us the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Jesus was aware and what you and I need to be aware is we desperately need God's spirit to empower and equip us. When I come up here or Pastor Andy comes up here on any given Sunday, if there is any benefit in this 30 to 45 minute monologue that we do, it's because God's spirit through his word goes upon you who have the spirit and hear the word. That's it. It's, it, we, we can't prepare well enough. We can't be witty enough. We can't tell good enough stories. None of that is going to be life-changing as much as the Spirit's work. And the same is true in your individual lives, in conversations you have, and, and trying to lead people to Christ. It is all contingent. It is all dependent on God's Spirit working through you. So in order for God's Spirit to work through you, the, the, one of the great keys is we need to surrender to the Spirit's leading and prompting. We need to abide in Him and, and to walk in, in Him to have that lasting impact. Uh, I don't know if I would feel comfortable in today's technology. I'll, I'll, I'll ask by a show of hands. How many people would be comfortable riding in a car that is driving by itself? Raise your hand. A couple people. One comedian's like, I'm more confident of that car than the teenager texting on his phone two, aisle, two lanes over. So yeah, I'll, I'll take the, the programmed car. Uh, but one of those things with those cars specifically is they usually have a safety feature. And the safety feature is this, the driver can override the automatic driving. Like in a moment, you can step in and basically take over the steering wheel, take over the gas pedal and things like that. And I think what we need to understand, that there is a sense, and I'm not talking about like we're zombies, but there is a sense as we walk with Jesus, as we abide in Christ, as the Spirit is guiding and directing, we kind of let him drive the car. You understand? That we, we allow him to lead and to empower us. We aren't uh, getting in the way too often what our issue is, I think, as Christians, as we take the steering wheel. We live in our own flesh, we live in our own strength, we live in our own ability. Galatians 5.16, Paul warns about this. He says, I, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So think about that. Walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Look at the last week. How many times did you gratify the desires of the flesh? All of us are guilty. Why was that? Because you were not walking by the Spirit. Now, will we ever do this perfect, this side of glory? <clears throat> no. However, I think as we walk closer with Jesus, as we live in surrender, as we abide in Christ, as we spend time in the Word and in prayer, as we're confessing sin, as we're, we're really being radical, putting boundaries in our life, as we do that, that we're going to get closer and closer and closer to walking in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Because he says, you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. See, the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control against such no things uh, is such law. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
And what we see with Jesus, and here's the beauty, and here's the wonder. Jesus is the perfect example of what the Spirit-led life looked like. Perfect. Without sin, always did the right thing, always obedient to the Father, always followed the Spirit's leading. So I think if we look at Jesus, what we hope and desire as the Spirit works in and through us, we will be more and more like who? Like Christ. Well, do you have the Spirit of God? Are you walking by the Spirit? Do you ignore his leading? Do you walk in your own power? I think this is radical, life-altering truth for us as Christians. Because I think way too many believers in Christ— You've got your insurance card to get out of hell, so you think. I prayed a prayer, but then you live your life from the time that you acknowledged, I need Jesus. From that point forward, I live my life in my own strength, my own ability. Sometimes you have more willpower than other days, but there's not spirit-led leading. And what we need to do is be constantly, think about this, even in a given day, how often do you say, God, I need your help in this moment? I felt that yesterday. I was, at a, I, I was doing a wedding. It was 85 degrees outside. It was a, a little bit prestigious wedding. And I, I got like literally two minutes before the uh, processional, I got anxious. I was like, oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. I was like, there's my friend. I was like, I haven't seen you anxiety for a little while. And I did. In that moment, it was one of those kind of like, I was like, God, this could be a dumpster fire. I prefer it not be a dumpster fire. Uh, I don't think it'll look good on you if I make it a dumpster fire. So I could use some help right now. Like, this is literally my prayer in the moment. So I was like, let me just calm down and let's just do this. And God was gracious. I thought he he worked uh, in and through it. But no, that's kind of like, that should be the routine. That should be the norm. Like when we wake up till we go to bed, that conversation with the Lord and having the Spirit guide and direct us, and being sensitive to hear and listen from the Spirit. When you see somebody opportunity to have a conversation with, don't be too busy. That God may be provided this chance for you to have this uh, talk with this person in the Spirit. All right, so we see the Son is baptized. We see his innocence, his identifying. We see the Spirit descends. He needed uh, power, so we need power. And then lastly, the eventful day ends with a word from the Father. The Father speaks. Notice his affirmation of his Son. And this is a big deal. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It kind of catch you off guard, right? You'd think there was like some narrator or like what's, what's going on. But it's not just any voice, it's who? It's, it's God, it, God's voice. The Father is speaking, the Father is affirming. Let's say you work over at Amazon, okay? You're over at Amazon, you're working, you work in HR, you're responsible for hiring. And one particular person is uh, applying and on their reference List, he puts Jeff Bezo or Bezo, who's the founder of Amazon. Like, that's a good, that's a good reference. And you call the number, like, this must be fake, and Jeff answers. And he's like, yeah, he's my cousin. I love the kid. Like, he is spectacular. Please hire him. Like, how often would you kind of shrug that off if you just spoke to the founder of Amazon and you are hiring for Amazon? 
couple months later, he calls, he visits your building, and you're like, why didn't you hire my cousin? I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Like, I just said how much. This is, this is the big deal. That's what God is doing. He's, he's saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's a big endorsement. There's two Old Testament references going on here, though. One, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my, guess what name? Son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It is foreshadowing and pointing towards the coming Christ, pointing towards Jesus. So what God is saying is my son here, this guy, Jesus, he is the prophesied king that will come, whose reign will have no end. But it's also referencing Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Jesus is the servant. Well, what kind of a servant is this going to be? We turn to Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So he's the coming Messiah, the coming king, but he's also the one who's going to come and suffer. The suffering servant. This is Jesus at the end of the day. His earthly ministry will end like that. Though victorious, it will end with extreme suffering. He will achieve salvation. And what the Father is affirming in this moment is he is the one. He is the one who's going to be king and rule and reign. He is the one who's going to die in the place of his people in order to bring this salvation that we speak of. Well, does this excite you? Does it surprise you? that our salvation would come with the suffering of our Savior? Are you listening and responding to the Father's affirmation? We sang it, new song today, this is our God. That should be kind of like a mantra and theme. King Jesus, like it should excite us to sing about Christ. It should excite us to talk about Christ. There's nothing better in your life, friends. I know you have family and you have kids and you have jobs and you have all these different things. And all of those things are great. And I love all of those things in my life. But there is nothing greater in my life than Jesus Christ. All of those things are in perspective based on Christ. Don't forget that. Because we see his affirmation, but we also see his affections towards his son. He says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Notice the emphasis on the sonship. What has Jesus done so far that we're aware of? What's he done so far? He's done nothing so far from our angle. He's been born. We can read a little bit that he went to the temple and he was growing in wisdom and stature, but we haven't seen anything. He hasn't, he hasn't preached a sermon yet that we've heard. He hasn't uh, done a miracle yet, and yet God can look at him, the Father, and can say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. It's the pride that a father would have of his child, right? I, I, I know I'm, I'm terribly guilty of this. I brag about my kids. It's me living vicariously, think through the kids, 
But if they do anything remotely good, I don't celebrate their failures as much. I don't like, yeah, he did this or she did that. But no, like I do, I struggle. My daughter did good on this. I mean, like, hey, we managed to throw that into a conversation. Or my son's doing well in sports. I'll just, I got to I'm just so proud. I'm like, to, to talk. And I, that's the eternal relationship with the Trinity. I think that's what we don't appreciate. How good things were in eternity past before God created. They weren't missing anything. Do you understand that? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were in his perfect, loving, dynamic relationship. And then in their the divine wisdom decided to create and decided because it was going to bring great glory. But it wasn't like we were adding something to God. And this relationship was so amazing. He's never not been pleased with his son. Matthew 17, 5, he's going to say it a little bit later. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father was, is, and will always be proud of his Son. 2 Peter 1, 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, just as an utterance, as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And I think because God emphasizes the sonship, because he highlights the fact that he is well pleased with his son, that should be of huge encouragement to you and I. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of his and the ramifications. Because think about it, think in the orphanage world or like in the adoption world and with orphanages and uh, how many times... You've got kids growing up in environments where they have no comprehension what it feels like to be loved. They get shuffled from one group home to the next group home, and and they're often, they can be abused, they can be mistreated. And then, in God's providence, a family comes along that adopts, and they embrace this child as their own And it's usually really difficult for that child to come to grips with the change because they're just not used to it. They're not used to, they don't know what is this thing going on being loved and being respected and cared for and concerned about. Isn't that what happened for you and I in the gospel? John 1 says those who believed him, they became right to become children of God, not born of a man, but born of, of God. Ephesians 1, 4, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace which he has blessed us in his beloved. That we're loved. Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Think of that. How radical that is. That God loves you. Not in a generic, he loves it. No, he loves you specifically. He loves you, the person. 
He loves you. He sees in you his son. He sees purity. He sees holiness. He sees the righteousness. He's pleased with you. One day he's going to embrace you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Great is your reward. One day he's going to wipe away every tear. Isn't that glorious that God is pleased with you? You and I, we get so excited about our children. Is God any less excited about his children? I shared, one of the things I shared at the wedding was as I was looking at the bride and she was so stunning and, and that's what God is going to see at the end at the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's going to look at you and his eyes are going to be glowing and beaming like the groom is at a bride. So friends, wherever you are today, if you're in Christ, you are loved. He is pleased with you. And I think a lot of us, that's hard for us to hear because we don't feel like we're that good at kids. I don't have many accomplishments. I haven't done that many good things. Why would he be pleased with me? Because he loves you. And it's not based on your performance. It's based on your identity in Christ. Or are you grateful for that position in Christ? Are you pleased that he's pleased with you? It's a somewhat common theme in war movies where you'll see uh, soldiers, they're in a, a pinch, somewhat predictable, but enemies will be surrounding them. It'll look bleak. It'll look hopeless. And then out of nowhere comes this unexpected twist. And usually you'll notice the enemy noticing it before the other people. All of a sudden, the enemy starts to, to retreat. Or, and then all of a sudden, the people that were in this hopeless situation will notice a fighter pilot, a helicopter, soldiers, tanks. They're no longer alone, no longer without hope. They're not in danger anymore. And I think what we see in that is this immediate response is one of celebration, of rejoicing, of relief, of pure joy. And I think that's kind of what's going on in this passage. Jesus has been under the radar. We know he was born, but for the general public of the Israelites, they're still kind of in this Roman rule. Life is difficult, sad times for God's covenant people. They're in the land, but it's not their land. And what appears like from out of nowhere, Jesus shows up. 30 years after the virgin birth and all the promises of who he was and what this child would be. Remember Matthew 2, 6. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from him you shall become a ruler, from them will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And today's passage is that coming. Today's passage is that public introduction. He's here along with the Spirit and the Father, Trinity in full force, to let everyone know it's going to be all right. To let everyone know the Lamb of God is here who's going to take away the sins of the world. That he is here, and we know that not only did he come, he did what he came to do. Through the cross, it wasn't going to be all right. It is all right because of Jesus. 
And I think what our response should be is to rejoice, to celebrate that the king has come and he's coming back. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we just thank you for the encouragement of Jesus. We, we thank you for his identifying with us that he did what we could not do so that we could be right with you. We, we rejoice that you uh, not only empowered him by your spirit, but that you have given us your spirit so that we are not set up for failure, but that we can be in close, intimate relationship with you, but we can also have the power to uh, be used mightily by you in this world. And we rejoice and celebrate that because of Christ, when you see us, you see your son, and you're well-pleased. I pray for anybody here today who's really struggling with identity, struggling uh, with where they stand in in life and eternity, and they feel like they're useless and unloved and and meaningless. I, I pray that you would soften their heart and help them to understand that you love them, you care for them, and you're so pleased with them, and you look forward to a day when you spend eternity with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.